Well, as I said, this morning we're on um, a sermon on a sermon, and it's by a guy whose name is Peter. And Peter is, uh, he's one of the most interesting people in all of the New Testament. If you go to the Gospels, you read the stories of Peter's life, you find Peter uh, was one of Jesus' earliest disciples, and, and he's an interesting character. He is, he's brash, at times maybe it's had arrogance. He's one of the first ones to always speak. Often when he speaks, he's a little bit naive. He's the first person, we're told, who actually believed in in Jesus. He loved Jesus. He loved being a part of Jesus' um, disciples. And yet, when you get to the end of Luke's gospel, Peter's life almost completely falls apart and unravels. That is, Jesus is... Being taken to the cross, Peter Peter denies Jesus and abandons Jesus. And I want to read that text at the end of Luke's gospel now, what happens with Peter. Luke chapter 22. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man, Peter, also was with Jesus, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. How devastating is is that? That Jesus has been arrested He's being abandoned. He's being taken to, uh, to court to be crucified on a cross. And one of his closest friends denies him. It's a shame to even be associated with him. And you read all of that account of Luke's gospel. And Peter is even denying Jesus to, to a young servant girl, most likely a middle school girl. So Peter, he's so ashamed, he can't even acknowledge he knows Jesus to a, to a child, basically. But here in Acts 2, in the text I'm about to read, Peter is going to get up and preach the first sermon with with boldness and with courage. Just seven or eight weeks after the moment where he cannot even acknowledge he knows Jesus to a young girl. And it raises the question, what happened to Peter? How does he go from denying Jesus to preaching one of the boldest sermons that's ever been preached on behalf of Jesus. I think the best way to answer that question is actually to read the text. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2 for us and then um, answer that question. What is it that changed in Peter? I think we see that, we learn that um, by looking at this sermon. So it's Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 39. Um, if you've got a Bible, actually, maybe don't look at it. Listen. This is a sermon. Let, let Peter's sermon kind of preach for you in this moment. Here it is, Acts chapter 2, starting verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirits and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the, blood, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held By it, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers and sisters, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn this with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the word of the Lord. So what happened to Peter? And what changed for him? Well, a lot changed. But in looking at the sermon, there there are a few things I want to pull out. And the first is that Peter, um, Peter saw Jesus is the true story. Peter is the true story. Now, one of the things you'll notice as, you, as, you, as we go through the book of Acts is that any time um, the apostles begin to preach, they will quote extensively from the Hebrew Scriptures. And so here in, in this text, in this first sermon, Peter quotes from four Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes from Joel 2, he quotes from Psalm uh, 16, Psalm 32, and Psalm 110. And the reason for that is, is, is a few things. One is that this was considered the Word of God, and so if, if God spoke in the Hebrew Scriptures and Jesus is the Son of God, of course, like the Hebrew Scriptures would would speak to the reality of who Jesus is and what, um, what he's done. But even more than that, like these were the stories that, that everyone just kind of told them, their kids these days. 
It's like, you just, as, you, as, a, as a Hebrew Christian, you, or as somebody believing in God, you'd, like, you would tell Joel 2 to your children, one day, like, the Messiah's going to come, and the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all people. You would tell the story of the Psalms being true one day in David. These stories weren't just like, like the Bible. They were also like, it was like the Harry Potter of our day, or the Star Wars, or the Lord of the Rings. These were the stories that, that they, they told their kids again and again and again. And, and what Peter's doing here is he's saying, these stories that you've been telling yourselves all of your life, they are true in Jesus. Jesus has made them all true for you. But he's saying, he's actually, he's saying more than that, because he's not saying, like, these are, this is fiction. He's saying, no, like, like Harry Potter, like, came to life. <laughs> like, this is history. This really happened in a person named, named Jesus. And, and this, he does this in a couple ways, and I'll, I'll unpack, like, two passages of the four that he, he, he quotes. And Peter starts with Joel 2, and he says, listen, Joel 2 is happening before your very eyes. And there were kind of two promises that were central to Joel um, chapter 2. One is that the Spirit of God in Joel 2 would be poured out on all people. And so in the, the Hebrew Scriptures, if the Spirit of God was poured out, it was really just on like a prophet, uh, a few prophets, a few people, a few select people. But what Joel was saying was going to happen in the last days, in the days of the Messiah, is that the Spirit of God would be for all people. Be for both men and for women. For old men and young men. It would be for even the forgotten, the servants, those of, of poor socioeconomic class, men and women of all classes, all shapes, sizes, everyone who, who calls in the, in the name of the Lord would be saved and would have the Spirit of God. So that's one thing Joel 2 was about. The second thing that Joel 2 um, is, is about is that the Spirit of God would be for all the nations. And that's why we spent a lot of time last week in Acts 2 saying the first work of the Spirit of God was to get the gospel into all of these languages so that the gospel go out into all of the world. And so the Spirit of God is not just for God's, like Israel, for one nation anymore. It's for the whole world. And Peter just says, like this, you're watching this happen because of Jesus. Joel 2 is happening right now. And you're all witnesses to this. So that, that's one um, that's one passage where Peter pulls from. The other is he, he goes to, to the Psalms, and he, he quotes at length from David's experience, and in particular Psalm 110. And it's sort of a weird quote to us, um, verse 34, when Peter says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's from Psalm 110. That's David saying that. And it's interesting because David is, is king when he writes Psalm 110. And, ten, and, and he's, he's referring to a promise God had made him, which God had promised David, at some point you're going to have a descendant, and that descendant, like great, 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 great grandson, he's going to be a king, and he's going to rule for all eternity. Which was always this intriguing promise, like, okay, well, how is David going to have a human child who reigns for eternity? Because, I, I don't know if you know this, human beings die. That tends to cut off your reign as king when you're dead, and so, like, how's this going to, what's going to look like? How's it going to happen? And yet, in that, in, as David reflected on that, um, in Psalm 110, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, and what David is doing there, he's referring to that future descendant, that future king, as his Lord. He's referring to his great, 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 great grandson as, as my Lord. Now, my, uh, so a lot of parents here, a lot of some grandparents, my guess is you've never referred to your children as my Lord. Now, our, many of our children, this is what they think. They think that they are our Lord. And many of us, let's be real, that is how it functionally plays out in our home. Our children are our Lord. But that's not, listen, in this day, like, there was this strong hierarchical sense of, like, you don't, you're better than your ancestor. Like, you're better than your future descendants. Like, their age is a, it's a major ranking. And so for David, 
to say the Lord, my Lord, like God said to my Lord, my descendant is sent, like this, he's investing a worth in this descendant that is beyond human. And Peter says back and says, we know who that Lord is. It's Jesus. Because David went into a tomb. He died. Jesus' tomb is empty, and he, he ascended. That didn't happen to David. Like you, go, you can go visit David's tomb. You actually, you could go visit David's tomb, uh, tomb in this day. It had a little white, um, a little white uh, marker out in front of it. You knew where David was buried, which I think lends historical credibility to this. Peter's basically saying, go to Jesus' tomb. Everyone knows it's empty. It's because he's in heaven. He ascended to the right hand of God. And Peter doesn't just say, like, I believe this in my heart. No, he says, we are all witnesses to this. He's like, you know, you know you can't go to his tomb. It's empty. But you can go to David's tomb. And that is because Psalm 110 has come true in Jesus. And so, this is, I mean, this is Peter saying, every story you've been telling your kids has come true in, in Jesus. And this is just really important because as Christians, we... We think out our faith in a very different way. Like we don't think of our of our faith as primarily being about advice we give to people about how to live um, better and how to become better people. We believe Christianity at its at its core is news about what has happened. Right? It's it's not advice about how to live. It's news about what has happened that changes everything. And suddenly we begin to see every story. Everything we, we've ever hoped for, ever longed for, is now about Jesus. Everything's now about Jesus. And I don't know if this is going to work. I'm going to try. Um, but my favorite uh, Super Bowl ad from last week, the Super Bowl, was, um, it was a Tide uh, commercial. And I don't know if you saw it, uh, if you got to see it, if you were watching the Super Bowl. It's so good, we need to take a minute to watch it. So, <laughs> Kathy. Oh, there's actually there's a bunch more that you should go watch later today. I know you will. Uh, but like the, the whole the, kind of the whole ad campaign is like now every ad you're watching, you expect like David Harbour from Stranger Things to show up and say, no, this is a Tide ad because there's clean clothes in it. It was brilliant. And 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 again, just try to come with me on this. Uh, but <clears throat> but I mean, this is what's happening to Peter is suddenly every Hebrew scripture he looks at, it's G- Jesus is there. All right, every hope he's had about the spirit of God being poured out into all the world, about Um, the pains of death being loosed, about resurrection being true, about the the king of David coming. It's all Jesus now. Everything's about Jesus. And it's why, like as Christians, our primary mission as a church is not about advice and how how people can live. It's not, listen, I hope we can help you. 
with that. But as a mission, as our mission as a church is not about three steps to being a better parent. It's not about how to better manage your finances. It's not about a political agenda. It's about news that has happened, that is, has changed everything. And so becoming a Christian, it's not, about, it's not about becoming a better person or doing a bunch of things, which is why Peter could change so fast. Because Peter didn't have a list of things he had to accomplish before he could get up and preach. No, he just, he had to see everything is about Jesus now. It's all about Jesus now. And because he sees that, he steps into a new world. He steps into a new world. And it's, it's sort of like this. In, in May, I'm going to go to um, Disney World um, and to uh, Universal in Orlando. And I know this, uh, this is a, sometimes it can be a controversial topic in church. It's not controversial to me, so I hope you come with me. But um, I'm going to go to Harry Potter World in May. And I'm going to step into a place that, uh, that's going to just bring back to all the reasons why I love that book. I'm going to drink butterbeer. Some of you are like, hey, man, that's, that's beautiful. Uh, I'm going to walk down Diagon Alley, right? Maybe, you know, get my kids a wand. Like, I'm going to experience, I'm going to step into, like, Harry Potter world is real. Like, Harry Potter is true, and it's actually happened. And what Peter is doing, he's stepping into a world where resurrection life is real. He saw, he saw the tomb go empty. He stepped in a world where any sin can be forgiven. Jesus went to the cross for him. Where every shame that you've ever experienced has a covering. Where every physical ailment you ever experienced, it'll one day be healed. Peter has stepped into a new world. Which is why he can get up and with boldness proclaim the gospel. Proclaim a message. Because if, if Christianity is about advice on how to live, Peter couldn't do that. He's, he's failed. But it's news about what's been done for you. It's the true story. It's the true story. And so Peter steps up and with boldness speaks preaches. So that's one thing happening. The other is if, if you're going to understand Christianity, you have to let the gospel stab your heart. Peter does something in the sermon that uh, is typically not a, a wise decision if you're speaking to a crowd. Um, and he does this in verse uh, 23. He says, he talks about Jesus. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite f- uh, plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men. And in case um, you're, uh, you're wondering, um, he says it again in verse 36. He says, uh, uh, the God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, there's two things really interesting about this. One is that um, it tends to not go well when you ac- accuse the crowd listening to you of murder. That's not an endearing move. Like, you're all murderers. Like, that's not going to win the crowd over to your side, typically. But what's, what's also surprising about this is this is not... This is not the same people who crucified Jesus seven or eight weeks ago. Remember last week, all of these people come in from all over the world. There's people from all over Jerusalem who are here. And so on the one hand, yeah, there may be some people who were there yelling out, crucify him for Jesus. But this is not the same group of people. So how can Peter say to them, you crucified Jesus when they didn't? And this is why we started with Peter's, Peter's story. Because what happens to Peter? Peter, he's, he's Jesus' disciple. Jesus gets arrested, he's going to the cross, and what happened? Jesus, Peter denies him three times. And Luke records something that no one else does. He says that the third time, Jesus, uh, Peter denies Jesus, and the rooster crows. Jesus and Peter, they meet eyes. The moment of Peter's biggest failure, he and Jesus, they meet eyes. But the reason why Peter can look at these folks and say, you, you crucified Jesus, 
is because he knows he crucified Jesus. He's responsible for that. And this is one of the hardest, this is one of the hardest parts of Christianity's message in today's day and age. We don't like this, this thought of like, the gospel is that we are so flawed and broken that we are responsible for the death of Jesus. That's what the gospel teaches. That's what Peter's saying here. In other words, for like in Christianity, our, our brokenness as human beings is not that you had an extra piece of chocolate last night after dinner. Our brokenness as human beings is that we do not want anything to do with God, left to ourselves. And the best example of this is when he sent us his son, his son ended up naked and murdered on a cross. And put in a tomb. Like the moment God gave us more than he'd ever given us before, we, we killed his own son. That's the message of Christianity, is that we are responsible for the death of Jesus. And we want to get so far from God, we will turn violent when God sends us his own son. And again, I, like I hear that, and it's immediately a lot of us kind of modern years, like, that's just so offensive, that's bad. And, and I just, for a moment, just come with me and believe like that's true. Because there's actually two really freeing things about this view of sin, about this view of, of human brokenness. And if you accept that, like, you are personally responsible for the death of the Son of God, if you accept that, if you welcome that in, it's actually incredibly freeing in two ways. The first is if that's true, then that means everyone is equally guilty. We are all, like Peter, as much as this crowd, right? That Peter is not preaching from a place of, of pride or self-righteousness. He's already gone, he's already let the gospel stab his heart. When he and Jesus met eyes, it, this is my fault. Peter knew it. He, the gospel had stabbed his own heart. And so there's, there is not a sense of, of priority or some Christians being better than others, when we speak the gospel as Christians, we speak as guilty people. And that's, that's entirely different than if I was to, to go to someone and say, you know, I've, I've obeyed all the teachings and I've climbed the mountain and you need to come up and be like me. You need to join my way and the teachings I've found. But that's not what we have as Christians. What we have as Christians is, is we crucified Jesus. Right, so everyone's equally guilty. There's no room for pride. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for judgment. There's no room for us to ever think ourselves superior to any person. When you've had that moment and you've let the gospel stab your heart that you're responsible for the death of the Son of God, you can never preach the gospel out of pride. You can't. Which is why one of the most dangerous things is a Christian who is not, or someone who claims to be a Christian, who has not let the gospel stab their heart. And they're preaching out of a place of, well, I'm doing the teachings and I'm obeying and I'm, I'm better than, that is the most dangerous type of person, is a religious person who thinks they've arrived because they are less guilty than other people. Without the doctrine of sin, there, there's no way to avoid pride and self-righteousness and arrogance. But in Christianity, like, the best disciple of Jesus is as guilty as this crowd. We're all equally guilty. That's the first thing. The second thing is then we're all, we're all equally loved. That, listen, I'm just to reflect on the question together. How much, how much would you say that, that it has cost God to love you? Because if you don't have a doctrine of sin, then a lot of what I hear is like, well, God just loves everybody, and that's kind of his thing. God loves people, and people aren't that bad. It's just God loves us. And that, but your, your vision for how much you think God loves you is directly tied to what you think it cost him to love you. That was good. I'm going to say that again. Your, your vision of how much you think God loves you 
is directly tied to how much you think it costs him to love you. And if you think God's like, well, whatever, I love everybody. It's all good, and God's, you know, hippie, and, you know, he's doing the right thing, and he just loves everybody. If that, that will not help you when you need it. When you're looking in the mirror and you, you've done something you can't take back, when you have a sense of shame that you, no matter how many positive messages you've received, you have not been able to get it away, when you failed your kids in a way you can't take back, it, a God who just loves everybody is not going to help you then. And that's not the gospel. What the gospel is, what Peter's saying is you killed Jesus. Right, y'all? You put Jesus, he got, gave you his son to pour out the spirit unto all of the world. He gave you his son to reign for all eternity, a, a you know, kingdom of justice and peace and righteousness, all that good stuff. He sent Jesus to us and we killed him. We put him on a cross and we put him in a tomb. That's what we did. The gospel then continues on and God, God says to our no to him, he says no right back to us. And I love I love the contrast from verse 23 to 24. So Peter says, y'all killed Jesus. Then verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words, what Peter is saying is happening is that we, we said to God, no, we're going to put your son on a cross, we're going to put him in a tomb, and God comes back to us and says, no. No, I'm going to raise my son up. And the, the thing by which you tried to run from me and get away from me as far as you can, I'm going to get even closer. And I'm going to raise him up to life and send him to the right hand of God and send out my spirit anyway. I mean, that's the, the gospel message is that you cannot run so far from God, he won't run further. You can't get so deep um, beneath God that he won't get deeper still. The message of the gospel is that when we killed Jesus, God overruled that decision and saved us and offered salvation to us anyway. And friends, if you believe that, if, that's, if you think that's true, then that means there's never a moment in your life where you think you can have failed to the extent that God cannot overcome that, cannot heal you of that, cannot overcome your shame. Because listen, I, just spitballing here, but I don't think there's a worse thing a human being can do than murder the Son of God. And yet God took that and and made resurrection, made forgiveness of sin, made the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to us. Whatever you're looking in the mirror at, thinking God cannot love you for, is, it's wrong. And you only, you only get there if, if you believe that you're responsible for the death of Jesus. Right? The only reason you can see God has overruled your sin is if you believe that God, that, that first that you are a sinner yourself. It's the only way. In the gospel, we're all equally broken, all equally guilty, responsible for the death of Jesus, but we are equally loved by a God who takes our sin and overrules it. We say no to God, and his no is much stronger back towards us. But you, you only get to that stronger no if you let the gospel stab you. Right? That's, what, that's what happens to the, the men at the end of the sermon, or these people at the end of the sermon. It says they were... When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Literally, means their, their heart was stabbed. And when your heart gets stabbed, it's painful, right? You die. As I'm assuming this. I've never been stabbed in the heart. I don't think you'd come back from that. And yet, through this death, they, they experience a new life, a new hope, <laughs> resurrection, forgiveness of sin. You see why Peter changed? Peter now believes there's nothing he can do to lose the love and grace of God. The, one, the worst thing he ever did, deny Jesus and run from him, 
Jesus went to his cross anyway for Peter. Peter's changed. He's bold. He's courageous. He stands up to preach. Because his heart's been stabbed. He sees the true story. And last, he lives, he lives in the promise. So when you get to the end of the sermon, um, they're cut to the heart, they're stabbed, and, and they ask the question to Peter, what shall we do? Right? Like, Peter's like, you killed God, you killed Jesus. Um, and they say, well, what do, we, what, what do we do now? And Peter's answer is this, it's repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, my, if, uh, if I was to think, okay, I killed the Son of God, and I ask, what am I supposed to do now? My guess is that the list of things I'm supposed to do is going to be a pretty long list. Um, but Peter says two things, and it's really just one thing. He says, okay, you need to do two things. You need to repent and you need to be baptized, which is really just repent. And repent means you're, you're walking this way, stop walking this way, and start walking this way. Turn around. Right? The path that you're on, and listen, this is what Peter's saying, is if you, apart from this kind of intervention, you're on the sort of path that will crucify the Son of God, that will just get further and further and further away from God again and again and again. And Jesus, when he talked about this, he said, listen, you are, you are on a, a path of, of, of pride and arrogance and selfishness that will end up looking like a trash heap. It's just on fire for eternity. That's what you're, if you don't stop, you're going to look like this. Turn around. So Peter says, repent, turn around, and be... Be baptized. But you think about like comparing that to the like the fact that we killed the Son of God, that being our to-do list, that's pretty short, isn't it? Like when I was a kid, I broke uh, our garage door window with a baseball because my dad had told me not to throw baseballs at the garage, and I just thought I, that wouldn't ever happen. And I, but it happened, and I threw through. And I had a long list of things to do after I broke that window um, in in in, high, in in elementary school. And Peter's like, "You killed the Son of God. Just repent." Be baptized. And even what we do, even repentance and baptism, it's not really stuff we do. It's more like getting in the way of God's promises. Right? Repentance is more, all right, I can't do it, so I just got to turn around. I'm going to trust Jesus and his promise. I'm going tr- to trust this is for me. I'm just going to move in that direction. And baptism, even though I used to think baptism was something I did or it's a choice you make, and it is to some extent, but really it's not. And I, this was never clear for me until I actually did my first baptism and the first person I ever baptized was a friend of mine from high school named Stacy, and we were both 18. We were moving on to college, and she wanted to be baptized. And so I started to explain to her what was going to happen in the baptism. And that was the first time I realized baptism is something more done to you than something you do. And so this is going to be a little bit uh, dramatized for effect, but I mean, it's like when I was explaining to her what baptism is, I was like, Stacy, I'm, I'm going to grab your face first. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to shove it underwater, and I'm going to hold it there to make sure we get it. It works. And then I'm... <laughs> I'm going to pull you back out, right? Like normally this is assault or like this is, this is strange behavior of, of a saving act or of, a, of an act of faith. It's something done to you. You get in the way of God's promises. And that's what Peter, when Peter says, repent and be baptized. And then what he does is he just lists all the things that are going to happen to you. You get in the way of, you get in the way of Jesus and you're going to be forgiven of all your sins. You're going to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have a promise made to you that's for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Live in the promise. Get in the way of the promise. That's what, 
That's what Peter says. And so, this morning, are you living in the promise? And really, I mean, directly, have you been baptized? If you've not been baptized, like this, get baptized. Get in the way of the promises of God. That's the gospel message, right? Is that we, we stop the direction we're going, we turn around and we move in a new way. We let God overrule everything we've ever done wrong, every mistake we've ever made, everything we wish we could take back, we can take back. So Peter says that to a crowd, and in one day, 3,000 people become Christians, begin following after Jesus. They see the beauty of this gospel. Do you see it? This isn't, just, this isn't just some way of life or some religious philosophy or some good teaching about how to live. This is, do you believe the Son of God came for you and he ended up on a cross because of it? And God the Father overruled that decision that we made and raised him to life so that you and I could know there is nothing that can separate us from his love. Do you believe that? Do you see that? Do you live in that? pray. God, there is not, there are not words that can convince any of us of the truth of the gospel message. And so I I pray your spirit would do two works on our heart. First, God, convict us of sin. God, don't, don't let us have a shallow view of our own brokenness. Don't let us, let's look over our sin. God, let us confront Let's look Jesus full in the eyes in our, our moment of shame. And God, with the Spirit then in that moment, fill up our hearts with the love of God that overrules our sin, rejects our rejection of him, and replaces sin with resurrection life, replaces rebellion with forgiveness, replaces murder with baptism, replaces guilt with purity. God, Spirit, preach to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.